Uh, we are looking at the gospel according to John. We've been looking at this uh, wonderful uh, book of the Bible for the last, I don't know, year and a half now. And uh, we're now in John 17. So I'm going to read this entire chapter for us. Uh, I will then pray and ask for God's help uh, because I need it. Uh, we all need it. Anything less would be a lecture, and uh, that is not what we are intended to have today. So uh, let's continue to worship as we read God's word. Would you hear now the word of God? When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people you, whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm not praying. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we are grateful that we get a front row seat to this prayer that Jesus Christ the Son of God, God the Son, prayed to you. And so now we come to you asking that you would teach us, you would guide us, you would direct us into all truth. May we be a people unified together as we seek to understand your word. 
I ask God that you would help those that may have walked into this place discouraged. Lord, that you would lift them up through the strength of your spirit at work in them. I ask, Father, that you would work in the hearts of those that may not know you, that you would extend your hand of mercy and you would draw sinners to repentance and faith in Christ and Christ alone. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we continue looking at John 17, and our theme for Advent has been and will be the unity Christ came to deliver. The theme of unity, as you've seen, is very strong in this prayer. I must remind you that Jesus clearly states his vision for the church in this section of Scripture. And he clearly states, he clearly prays that he wants them to be unified. In fact, he asked the Father, make them one as we are one. Now, this is an essential part of the Christian faith. It's an essential part of the church. And I want us to notice here that Jesus doesn't say anything about political affiliations. He also doesn't say anything about ethnic affiliations. He also doesn't say anything about interests or hobbies. He says there's a unity that will be found for those who are in Christ. This is a unity that is based on an inherent reality that has been given to us as God's people. We noted that last week, and that will continue to be proclaimed throughout this text. Today, we focus on truth-centric unity. Truth-centric unity. Last week was God-glorifying unity. We looked at the fact that all true Christian unity is unity that, in fact, glorifies God and God alone. It's not man that gets glorified. If you don't know, let me help you. Worship is about God, not us. This is a service to elevate the name of Christ, not man. We look to the scriptures to see who God is and who we are, but that draws us to then worship him because we see just how flawed we are. But by grace, we have been saved. Amen? We have been called to him through his marvelous work, not ours. And so today, we see this truth-centric unity. Truth is a very important thing. Uh, Throughout human history, people have pondered the question, what is truth? There are two major views that have always been presented, especially now in our day and age. Some would maintain that truth is a subjective or a relative concept that varies depending on individual perspectives and interpretations. For them, truth is not an absolute and fixed entity, but rather a fluid and dynamic one that is shaped by a variety of factors, including culture, language, or personal experience. Others argue that truth is an objective concept. It is not based on personal beliefs or opinions. According to this view, there are certain facts about the world and all that is in it that are true regardless of what an individual may think. The latter of these two views is the orthodox Christian view, or in other words, the true Christian view. My goal today is to show us that the unity that Jesus came to deliver, the unity that Jesus is talking about here in this text, is based on absolute objective truth. Now, truth is not a new idea or concept that is just being presented here in John 17. It's all over the Gospel of John. And uh, just to point out a few, John 1, 14 reminds us, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? That's the incarnation. 
and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 4, 24, Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. See, there's a way that God desires and requires to be worshiped. We do not get to pick and choose how we worship God. That text tells us that very clearly. John 8, 31, 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the what? The truth. And the truth will set you free. I don't know about you, but I want to be free. I want to understand the freedom that is found in God and God alone. John 16, 13 reminds us, as he was talking about the Holy Spirit, and he was telling his disciples, I'm going to give you the Spirit. I'm going to provide something. When I leave, in my absence, it's going to guide you, direct you, help you. And what was the Spirit's job? When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. There's many more throughout John and the Bible in whole. In fact, the Bible speaks of truth in this sense about 200 times. So we can assert here that truth is something that is important to God, and so it should be important to us. In this passage today, there are four points I want to point out for us. Uh, and for my note takers, I'm going to give them for you, give them to you, and then we will talk about them. Number one, truth has eternal consequences. Truth has eternal consequences. Two, understanding truth or the ability to understand truth is a gift from God. Number three, truth causes division. Truth causes division. And number four, Christians are called to be truth tellers. Christians are called to be truth tellers. Number one, truth has eternal consequences. Uh, look at verses 1 through 3. We're going to focus in on 3 here, but I just want to read this for us. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, so this is beginning the prayer. He's saying, I am praying to God the Father. And this is what he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And then verse 3. So this is where we're going to focus. Look at this. And this is eternal life. What is it? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Friends, this passage is massively significant. Here Jesus tells us that eternal life is available. And then he gives us the keys to that eternal life. I mean, this is a, a profundity. Uh, this is something that we need to stop and take hold of. So what is eternal life? What is Jesus talking about here? Well, he says, knowing God. So eternal life is not something that we wait for. It is something that we have now if we know God, specifically the what God, the true God. This has implications. One, there's a certain level of knowledge needed to know God. There's something that we have to know about this God in order to find out if he is the true God. If he is the only true God, there must be characteristics about him that are true. And those characteristics cannot be compromised, else we do not believe in the true God. It's a simple concept. 
but it's hard to comprehend. Because we like to create our own gods. By nature, we want to create a God that fits within our characteristics, that allows us to do the things that we enjoy doing, that allows us to keep going on down the path that we enjoy, and he won't say anything. He'll let us do what we want as long as we don't offend him too greatly. Now listen, that is not to say that it is all head knowledge either. So it's not just knowledge about God. Even the demons believe. I mean, Satan has a robust framework of systematic theology. I mean, he knows all there is to know about God. But the problem is, is that he has no relationship with God. He's in rebellion to God. He does not worship God in spirit and truth as we are told to do. And what Jesus means here is that knowing God, the sum of knowledge, works its way out in a relationship and submission to him. See, we worship God through Christ. We trust him. We have our faith in him and him alone. And in doing so, we obey Jesus. We obey the commands of God. We submit to his lordship in our lives, seeking to show others that we are his, not just by word, but by deed. Many perpetuate an idea of God that is disconnected from Christ and disconnected from the Bible. And this type of lowercase God is not the God that brings true knowledge of eternal life. In other words, that God won't save. He has no power to save because it is a false God. It is a dead God, an unreal God. The unity that Jesus talks about here is unity in the one true God, the eternal God. Thus, we can say that if we are truly united to Christ, we are disunited from those who oppose the true God as described in the Bible. There's something that sets us apart. Another implication of this is that there are indeed false gods. There are many false gods, and these are not just the idols made by wood or metal. There are many idols in our culture today. Our culture is infected with many other gods. Uh, we can call them the isms of idolatry. Uh, the main one is secularism. Uh, secularism is the principle of conducting human affairs based on naturalistic considerations without involving religion. We live in a very secular society right now. Uh, things that want to be disconnected. They want to uh, put Christians in a pen and say, as long as you stay there, we're okay with you. But once you start moving your way and impeding upon our desires and showing yourself to be in a contradiction to what we would present, we don't want anything to do with you. There's a lot of other isms that are affecting the church today that threaten the church today. Relativism, which causes many professing Christians to compromise on biblical truths in order to be relevant to those around them. We have sensualism, it produces this Hollywood-style entertainment in place of biblical, Christ-centered worship. Let's give them lights, camera, action. Give them a show. That'll really bring them in. And as many have said, what you win them with is what you keep them with. If you do not win them with Christ, if you do not win them and show them their need for a Savior, in an effort to be relative, you have not won them to anything but worldly ideas. Humanism is another secular scholarship that denies the Bible's teaching on creation 
on gender, on sexuality, and much, much more. Consumerism. Ooh, that hits hard. Especially during the Christmas season. Right? We become more attracted to worldly goods, to material things, rather than seeing the true meaning and grabbing hold to, to what God has called us to do in this day and age. I mean, there's many more things that can be said, but I think we all get the point. But what we can conclude here, based upon our text, is that what we believe about God has eternal consequences. In Acts 17, 29, Paul is preaching a sermon. And he concludes the sermon by saying, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the arts and imagination of man. So it gives us that category of just whatever we imagine as our false God. And he goes on, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who is this man? Jesus Christ. So this man... Jesus Christ will return one day. And he will return to judge the living and the dead. And he will judge all men according to their view of God, their relationship with God. Friend, do you understand that this life is short? Do you understand that this life it's finite. All of us must face the reality that we will one day be face to face with our Creator. And apart from Christ, you have no hope. Zero hope. There is no hope in this life or death apart from Christ. We don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know. Paul reminds Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. What are you doing with that truth? Have you reconciled that reality in your life. Winston Churchill once stated, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing ever happened. My prayer is that none here today would be that man, would be those that would see the truth of Christ and their need for Christ and would just scurry along as if they never saw anything. If you have not placed your faith in Christ and Christ alone, repented of your sins, trusting in him, I admonish you, do so today. Trust in the God of salvation, the one who will forgive those who come to him with a true repentant heart. For those of us who have already been guided to the truth of God by his grace, the following point is a reminder for our worship. We see next that understanding truth is a gift from God. So this should propel us to worship God. Look at verse 6, and we'll read through verse 8. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me 
is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. There's a lot of giving going on here, isn't it? He's given a lot. And what happens when you are given something? You receive it. You, you, you take hold of it. But you can't take hold of anything that you are not given. See, this teaches us that God the Father took a particular people out of the world, and he gave them to Jesus. We talked about this a little bit last week. That there was a specific people who God set a particular love upon and, and chose them and, and, and decided that these will be my people. I will be their God. We see this all over the Bible. And these people have been given access to truth. They've been given a measure of truth that is not given to the rest of the world. So a particular people have been given a special revelation of truth by Jesus. And here, this immediately speaks directly to these apostles. These apostles whom Jesus has revealed himself to, whom he has chosen, uh, will then uh, take the gospel message after Christ ascends to the right hand of the Father. They will preach the gospel by the power of the Spirit. The church will be formed. But all of us, all who have come after, rest on the foundation of their faith. We rest upon the truth that they told. We rest upon that which has been delivered to us. We know that because Jesus doesn't stop his prayer with these 11 men. Look down at verse 20 and 21. So going on, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only. So he's not just talking about these people, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Hey, that's us. That's us. We're going to look at that next week, Lord willing. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. They also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus prays for all who will believe, those that believe down the line, those that will believe after us. He has prayed for you, Christian. He says, I manifested your name. Now, this word manifested would mean a word that's translated uh, from the word reveal. So, in other words, he's saying, I revealed your truth to them. And how has he done this? From his teaching, from his miracles, and his perfect life of obedience. This statement sums up all of Jesus's ministry, even the cross ahead. He's saying, everything that I have done has pointed to the truth of God. Remember back in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So Jesus revealed himself to these apostles who then laid the foundation for the church by sharing the truth about Jesus Christ. And those who have believed their testimony have been given the gift of understanding. Uh, we read earlier Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's you're doing, you did a good job, way to go. That's not what it says at all. It is by his gift. It is something that has been given to us. So since faith is a gift and true faith is based on truth, which Jesus says is a gift as well, we can assert that true Christian unity cannot be found where objective biblical truth does not exist. If there is no truth, 
there is no unity. There must be truth to have true unity in Christ. Now, this leads us to our next point, that truth causes division. Look down at verse 14. So Jesus going on to praying here. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, verse 14, your word refers to Jesus' teaching here. And all good teaching involves truth. Uh, hopefully, as you are in class, students, uh, those that have gone to class before, those that may study anything in the future, the things that you were taught is what will be on the test. We need to know what's ahead in order to be prepared. And while oftentimes in educational environments the truth is not taught, the truth of Scripture will prevail. See, we have to know the Word of God. Uh, we have to base our understanding of truth on the Word of God because it's the Word of God that we will be judged on finality. We will always point to Christ, but we will always point to the truth that we know about Christ that is found in the Word. See, we cannot have faith in God without faith in the Word. We have to understand that God has given us His Word so we can understand him. That's a hard truth for many. It's hard to understand because it raises many questions. It points to the reality that uh, we may not all see these words. Uh, all may not understand these words, which compels and propels us to evangelism. It should teach and show that we as Christians who have been entrusted with this truth are commanded to go and tell others the gospel. See, we talked about this last week a little, that although there are some that have been called to salvation, those who have been predestined to respond to the gospel, we have no idea who they are. Our job is to proclaim the truth and allow the Spirit to work in the hearts of those whom have been elected. We preach the gospel, friends. We offer the free message of the gospel to all, and we trust that God will do the work to save. So what about those that may not have a Bible in their language? Well, we need translators. We need those that will, will go and will write and translate the message of the gospel. Uh, that's why it's important for world evangelism. That's why we take time to pray for unreached people groups, that God would raise up people, men and women, even in this church, to go and take the message of Jesus to those whom have never heard it. Brothers and sisters, we are commanded to do so, and we'll see this here in a minute. But what does Jesus want them to do? So we are told that Jesus says, okay, I have taught them your word, so we see that that's important. We, we must know the word of God. It's something that we must understand. And he says in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So what does he say here? He says, don't take them away. Don't remove them. Don't extract them from the world. They have a mission to accomplish. There, there's something that needs to happen. And he asked God the Father to protect his people while they stay in the world. 
He says, protect them. And specifically, he talks about the evil one. Who is the evil one? Well, it's Satan himself. You have a foe, and it's Satan. You have an enemy that hates you more than you could ever comprehend, and that is Satan himself. See, he hates you because God loves you. He, he wants to destroy you because he hates God. He wants to destroy your faith, your understanding of God. He wants to, to throw darts in your way and distract you so you dodge and move and, and go from here to there. And the goal is that you will move from worship of the one true God. Listen, this requires a little clarification because we know that Satan has been defeated. He has been defeated by the death, the resurrection, the exaltation of Christ. But until the final consummation of all things, when Christ returns, the world is under the control of the evil one. Notice I said the world. In 1 John 5, 19, the same writer of this gospel, he writes an epistle and he says, we know that we are from God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And in the gospel of John, the contrast between the world and Christians has been very apparent. See, there is something different, at least there should be, with Christians and the world. See, the devil controls the world, the elements, the systems of society. They are under the sway of the evil one. This is why Paul says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? The rulers, the principalities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces that are indeed the evil one. See, Satan has a leash. He does nothing without God's permissible will. But in God's divine sovereignty, he allows Satan to do certain things. We don't have time to unpack all of that today, but it is a truth that we have to wrestle with in this world. And what we can rest our faith upon is that Christ is king. God is sovereign. And he will protect his people through all things. Listen, Christian, you are under the power and control of a sovereign God who knows everything about you and has counted your days. There is nothing that can happen to you or will happen to you that is outside of the permissible will of God. Rest in that fact today. Trust that today. So we are not of the world, but we are still called to be in the world. We're still called to stay. It's noteworthy that three different People in the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament specifically, prayed for God to remove them from the world. So it's natural that we would want to be removed from this place. Uh, we see Moses, Elijah, Jonah. It's like, I don't want to go. It's like, just take me out of this world. But that is not God's way. That is not Jesus' call for his people. See, God has called us to stay here. Uh, and we are to do something. And that something is often to provide truth. Which brings to the final point that Christians are to be truth tellers. So it's going to bring division. We're going to have separation in ways from the world around us. We're in it, but we're different. We are guided by and governed by the principles of 
God's word, not man. And he says in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So what does Jesus want to happen to his people? What does he ask God to do for his people while they stay in the word world? To be sanctified, to be set apart, uh, to be different, to be purified even. He says, show them your word. Teach them your word. Uh, friends, sanctification is a lifelong process for Christians with two components. We have relational components and moral components. Sanctification involves separating oneself from evil and growing in holiness. Living according to the truth, which is the entire Bible, is necessary. See, Christians believe that God's word is truth itself and the standard of truth against which everything else must be compared. True Christians affirm that the Bible is unequivocally the authority in all matters concerning faith and life. We are governed by the word of God. If there are ideas that then contradict this, we must assert that they are either erroneous or heretical. We trust God's word. We believe it provides an infallible guide to differentiate between truth and falsehood. So true unity requires commitment to the Bible. Those who don't affirm or change what they want. Those who affirm but don't practice. I mean, there's many, many people today that say they believe in the authority of God's word, but their practice truly says otherwise. Friends, we must be committed to God's word. And he goes on and he says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So what are we called to do? To go into the world. He has sent us into the world. See, Advent reminds us, Christmas reminds us that Christ came. He entered into humanity. He put on human flesh. And he bore the sins of man in order that we may have eternal life. And God has shown us through his word over and over again that he did this because he loves us. The death of Christ was no accident, friend. The death of Christ was not based upon a situation. When Christ came to earth the first time, he knew what was ahead. He came on a mission. And so he says, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus emphasizes that he has dedicated himself to living a holy life, dying on the cross to bear the sins of those who have been given to him. And by doing so, he made it possible for his followers to be sanctified in the truth. And how is that? Because, friends, it is only in his death that you can be cleansed from your sins. You have no other hope. The message is that anyone can be reconciled to God, regardless of their past, regardless of what they've done, regardless of what they've believed. If they place their faith in Christ, they can be reconciled and have peace with God. But listen, this message is a message that must be rooted in truth. Adrian Rogers once said, 
It is better to be divided by truth than to be united in error. It is better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than falsehood that comforts and then kills. Church, there are too many people doing the latter. They're teaching an erroneous idea of God that is relative rather than objective. I assert that truth is an essential prerequisite for genuine unity to exist. True unity cannot exist in the absence of truth. Truth is a fundamental requirement for the existence of genuine unity. In today's world, the idea of relative truth is often promoted as a loving approach that Christians and churches should adopt in order to connect with others. Many are saying that we must uh, put aside our stance on abortion, that abortion is murder, that life begins at conception, at fertilization, in anything that says different is wrong. We must also not lay aside our views and the biblical view of gender. And in what the Bible says about gender, it is not based on one's decision. Rather, it is based on God who gives, who creates. We must also look at gender roles in the church and the home. See, many are saying that we must lay aside those things and put aside what Scripture says are the clear roles of men and women. Same-sex attraction. Those that would follow the lusts of their flesh in that way. We must not compromise on the truth that has been given to us. The sanctity of marriage and what marriage is and who are called to be married according to God. Even the exclusivity of Christ is being challenged in so many Christian, quote, Christian circles today. Friends, we must not waver. We must stand firm in the truth of God's word, if we are to be united as Christ has commanded. But listen, it's essential to remember Christ has called us to speak the truth, even when it's difficult or unpopular, but he's called us to do it in love. See, we don't just speak the truth for truth's sake. We speak the truth and we stand on truth in order to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once said that truth is never stronger than when it walks with charity. We must be loving in our approach. Now, loving does not always mean that people will assume us to be nice. If we go to the doctor and you have a terminal illness, you would hope that that doctor walks into that room and lovingly tells you in a way that you can understand that if you don't do this or you don't do that, you will die. You will die quicker. Here are some ways that uh, we can help prolong or even eradicate this illness. You would want him to tell you the truth about your disease. And friends, in the same way that you would not expect a doctor to come in there and say, you're going to die, good luck. We are called to speak the truth in love in a way that shows our care for others, standing on truth, not wavering, but seeking to show genuine 
compassion for those who are under the sway of the evil one. Jude, verse 3, he reminds in his short epistle, he says, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So church, we have an opportunity, especially this Christmas season, to speak the truth in love, young and old alike. Are you using your opportunities your relationships, to proclaim the truth of God, to point people to the reality of Christ, the true incarnation, the the return of Christ, that he came once and he will return. And when he returns, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I'll give you a moment now to think about maybe your own response to that and how you've shared that with others. Maybe those that might come to your mind, pray for them in this moment. If you've been wavering on truth, you've compromised in some way or another, I ask you to take a moment and pray. Ask God to put some steel in your spine and that he would combine that steel with love, compassion, charity to those who may think different. So take a moment. The band will make their way to the stage. Uh, we're going to celebrate a baptism here in a moment uh, for, that, uh, for one that has uh, placed his faith in Christ, has taken a stand on the truth of God and God alone. We'll celebrate that here in a moment. But take a moment. I'll pray as the band makes their way to the stage. Father, we thank you for your kindness towards us. We thank you that it is Christ and Christ alone whom we can rest upon, whom we can trust as the final word in our salvation. He has accomplished what we could not accomplish in his life, and he satisfied the wrath that is due us in his death. So may we trust on his work and his work alone today. May those that may not know you repent, believe, and follow King Jesus. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.